Today on Main Calling, the return of our tech gurus. Do you use Starlink for internet service? Have you been playing around with ChatGPT? Have you deleted TikTok? Or are you thinking right now, I have no idea what she's talking about and I'm not sure whether I should care. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Main Calling, we will get up to speed on the latest trends and controversies in personal technology with our favorite tech team. You are welcome to weigh in on these issues or just call or email with your more mundane, but nonetheless important tech question. After all, if the printer isn't working in your home office, that matters too. Stay with us, Main Calling is just ahead. Main Calling On Demand is made possible by listeners and by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. And by Welch and Forbes, working with clients to manage the full range of events that come with building wealth, from investments to trustee services. More welchforbes.com. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. Chances are that somewhere very close to you at this moment, there is a computer, a smart speaker, a smartphone, or some other kind of a device that in theory makes your life easier, but in practice, well, most of the time makes your life easier. Today, we will get answers to your questions about getting those so-called smart devices to work a little better and other tech-related questions. With me today, Jared Maxfield, the owner of Necessary Technology, and Janet McKenney, former director of library development in the Maine State Library. We invite you to join the conversation. You can send an email, a brief email, please, to talk at mainepublic.org. Post a comment on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or give us a call at one 800 399-3566. It's always a good idea on these days to get questions in a little bit early because we do often get a lot of questions. I'm going to start with you all. Instead of asking about um, some personal technology favorites, as I usually do, rather about some of the bigger things out there. And I'm going to start, Jared, with you and ask about Starlink. I know that we've talked about Starlink on Main Calling in the past, but I've noticed that it seems to be coming up in conversation more often. Just recently on a Main Calling show earlier this week, it seems as though more and more people in rural areas of Maine are utilizing Starlink. Um, I'm wondering if that's because there are more satellites. And I'm also wondering if for those who don't know what this is and what I'm talking about right now, you can give us a quick primer. Sure. Um, happy snow day. It is, uh, Starlink is um, from uh, an Elon Musk company and they're essentially satellites. It's just internet via satellite. So most of us typically still get our internet via a hard wire, you know, from your spectrums or fair points running running uh, cables down the road, but um, we've had satellite dish internet for quite a while, um, but it's never been super reliable or, or fast or, um, you know, up to par in order to be able to do the, 
basic things that people in rural areas really need to do to be um, successful when it comes to education and work and things like that and just entertainment. So Starlink has come out and what they are doing and have been doing, a lot of us have seen in the news, is essentially launching sets of, of satellites um, that literally often you can see uh, during the launches or at other times. And it's remarkable. I think you're you're probably hearing about it more and more because uh, more and more people, especially the rural areas, are signing up. It's now available. It's been a technology spoken about for a while, but it's actually out there. It's practical. It's usable. It's affordable. Um, and it's a great alternative for folks, you know, who are uh, on, in their rural areas in Maine, which in Maine, it's frankly most of us. And we've spoken about this, all of us here on the show, for how many years now, just the, the digital divide and the broadband access issues that we have in Maine. So it's uh, it's a cool system. And it's opening up doors for people. Um, a guy that works for me, he lives up in the Bryant Pond Woodstock area. And he's a guy in his 20s. He games and streams and everything. And he says it works great in all the weather. So it's awesome. And um, some people, honestly, there's some controversy. Because, again, you look up sometimes and you don't see the stars. But you see a, a string of satellites going by, which um, is cool. Um, I think, in fact, I downloaded an app recently that you can track the different strings as they go around. And just like the International Space Station, um, it'll tell you when they're going to go by, when you can look up in the sky and, and see see them. So it's also a science lesson in the sky for, for kids. But it's pretty remarkable. It's great for me. And, and Janet, I know that early on in one of these discussions, a lot of people were thinking it might not be a solution for Maine, that there was some sort of lag. But if if Jared's colleague is gaming on Starlink, it sounds as though those concerns are sort of uh, in the in the rear view window. Well, I think the thing about technology is it's always improving, you know, and, you know, number of satellites. I, I think there may be some challenges, you know, for people depending on where you live. I know the former state librarian who lived in Northport couldn't get adequate um, internet. Um, and he was one of the first Starlink subscribers. And he went from like freezing during every Zoom meeting to actually having a successful Zoom. So, you know, it it does work. All right. Let's talk about, um, here's a topic I know you guys know a lot about and I know very little about. So I'm just going to put that out there. I apologize if I use the wrong terminology. But Janet, chat GPT. I see this yes. in headlines. I have read a little bit about it, but I confess I have not tried chat GPT. What is chat GPT? Why is it so popular? Why is it controversial? Well, I, I think anything that has the words artificial intelligence attached to it, you know, make people really nervous. But, um, you know, Basically, I look at it is that, you know, like someone took the entire Internet and like put it on a computer and then created a um, a, a language so that um, the information can be th synthesized, you know, so the, the real thing is being able to ask, you know, natural questions to some to, you know, an automated thing, an A.I., and get back something that is readable and sounds like a human being and sounds conversational. Um, I'm going to stop I you have... right there. So yeah. 
instead of somebody might Google something if they want to find something out by typing in some keywords, might Google right. um, Main State Library hours. Um, right. But instead, you might say using your voice, um, tell me about the Main State Library, and it would just give you a paragraph back? Well, you actually type into a box, um, you know, and ask a question. And as I was doing it, and I took the tutorial, it actually, um, you know, before you actually do it, it kind of trains you, you can ask a basic question, and then you kind of modify it and, and try to, you know, narrow down so that you can get more accurate and pointed information. So it's a lot like um, a, a reference librarian doing a reference interview with somebody who says, I need information about cancer. And then, oh, I need information about colon cancer. I need information about this specific type. And, and so, you know, that way, so part of it is how you ask the question. Um, but the, um, it's a great, you know, it's, it's like having somebody do the research for you and synthesizing it together. So rather than asking Google and getting, well, we know we can get a hundred answers from Google, but this calls together all the information that it has and presents it to you. Um, it doesn't have any annotations. It doesn't tell you, although I haven't gotten into it, um, where it tells you what sources it mm. used to get that. But I tested it about the importance of public libraries. And I got something that, you know, I could totally agree with, you know, the answers and how it was presented and the, the talking points. And, you know, it it gave a little summary at the end that said, in summary, public libraries are important because they provide access to information, serve as community hubs, support lifelong learning, bridge the digital divide, and preserve cultural heritage and knowledge. And that's that's a pretty good summary answer, you know, um, for public libraries. Jared, how have you, I understand you've been playing around with chat GPT. What have you discovered? How have you been using it? Well, Janet alluded to a lot of it. I mean, it's just a, it's a very interesting, useful tool because we've been using search engines for a while and we've been talking to Siri and Alexa and getting their answers or lack of answers a lot of the time. So, you know, this, uh, this program OpenAI has put together ChatGPT and it, it will be integrated into chatbots and virtual assistants and um, it can it can write code you know if, if you've got a, a kid in school who's trying to learn to write code it, it can help you fix fix code that's written learn about it um, i've done simple things like taking content from my own website you know you might read a paragraph and go that's eh, not quite right i asked gpt could you write this a little bit better and, and it does um it's it's you know, it's just where we're going. These are going to be the things that are integrated and it's it's hopefully there to make life more, uh, you know, a little easier and give you a tool for access for information. Uh, like everything else, it's totally double-sided. You know, you know, if you're a, if you're a teacher. That's uh, what I was going to say. I school, can see why yeah. educators are concerned. Oh, yeah, my well, goodness. Yeah. yeah, well, for a while they've been, the educators have already, they've been dealing with this for a while. There's already been, 
issues yeah. with things being written from the internet. So now people have developed software that an educator can get to help them track plagiarism essentially from the internet. But now you have a an, uh, an AI that it can essentially, not essentially, it can write it for you and it can write it different every time. So make it, um, I read recently, there's some, I think it's like a science fiction type magazine or platform and they accept uh, uh, fan fan fiction or, or fan uh, creative writing, they had to shut it down because they're receiving so much that's just AI driven. So much content can be, can be put out there. I've seen comedians on, online just saying, Hey, by the way, I had chat GPT, write these jokes. Let's check it out. Um, on Twitch, this is not powered. I don't believe by chat GPT, but on Twitch, which is a streaming platform, there is a, this is interesting. There, there's a 24 seven, 365 Seinfeld episode running completely written and generated by AI. It will technically never end. Although they were suspended on Twitch in December for two weeks because some of the content that came out of the AI in, in that series was deemed quite inappropriate. So just, just like, just like humans, the, the computers are thinking and can be used for, for good or for bad, but it's, it's a heck of a tool. It's super interesting. And, um, you know, I recommend people play with it and, and have some fun with it. A little mind blowing. Okay. Last big issue in the news. Well, there are lots, but this is the third one we're going to talk about. Janet, do you have TikTok? And, uh, if so, how do you use it? And have you considered whether to delete it? I'm, I know people who use it to, you know, show off dance moves. Is that how you use it, Janet? Yeah, of course. You know, I never downloaded TikTok mainly because, um, you know, I'm I'm not video focused. I'm much, you know, I'm like that nerdy librarian. It's all about like words and text and all that. And video just takes so much time. But I have a wide variety of nieces, nephews, sisters that that use TikTok and and truly, truly love it. So um you know, I, I can't talk from my own experience, but, um, you know, I've been following the news about, you know, the federal government um, wanting people to remove it from their phones, state governments as well. You know, in Maine, it, it's also, you know, um, I think there's a time frame in order for people to get it off their phone if their phone it connects to the, you know, state network. So and this you know, is because it's Chinese. Yeah, it's because it's Chinese. And even though the company says that, you know, the Chinese government can't have access to the data, um, you know, nobody really believes or trusts that a company will do what it says and they're being truthful. So we're in this age of distrust. So there are, you know, people you know, the lovers of TikTok who, you know, just find it so engaging and fun and are creating content. And, you know, um, and then there's the other side where it's security. So it all always comes down to the balance between security and access. And um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens to TikTok. So Jared, I like Janet, I'm not on TikTok, but I know lots of people who are. And what I've seen is and maybe this is just my my crowd. It's all pretty silly, whether it's dance moves or uh, toys to make, you know, homemade toys to make for your dogs or how to follow a recipe. Um, what is it that 
people who are worried about TikTok are worried that the Chinese government is going to learn about American people? Well, the first thing is TikTok's free. Facebook is free. All these things are free. And we got to remember when something is free, they're not doing it out of the kindness of their heart. Someone's making money. The product at that point is us and our data and our information. And it's, it's hard for us sometimes to think about, but everything we do and that data that's collected is worth a lot of money. And it's, and that information is worth quite a bit. You know, in China, they have laws that essentially the government, if they go into a private company and they want access to this information, they have to give it over. And that's one of the concerns. But outside of the, you know, government concerns, we just also people should keep in mind, you know, every time we download an app and just go accept, accept, accept and click that privacy policy, what did you just hand over? And when you look at the TikTok privacy policy, you're handing over quite a bit of information as a standard um you know, standard agreement. And frankly, it's not just TikTok. It's with so many of the things and apps that we download. And that's the trade-off. If you're going to want to see the funny videos and the and the cute dogs and the, and the cooking recipes and things like that, and those short form videos, um, that's what you are going to trade off. So it's, um, and, you know, there's also arguments to be made and they're doing studies about just as we become this world who, lives by 15 second videos especially kids and adolescents like what is it what's it doing to our brains and to our learning process and to our attention span and you know there is some information out there that essentially implies that also if you were to look at the the in china for example in, the, in other countries a lot of their content is more tailored towards educational things and trying to actually get people to think and um whereas here we might have more entertainment driven things so there's also questions out there you know just how is the content driven and one of the long-term effects you know just not just on one person but one person adding up to our whole culture i mean it's a big thing everyone's staring at their screen and it can't always be a good thing even from the, the tech guy says staring at your screen all the time cannot always be a good thing so it's it's concerning but it's it's not limited by any means to just TikTok. We're panning over this information with virtually everything we download. On that note, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to answer audio audience questions about um, your personal technology. Also, if you want to weigh in on any of these issues, feel free. The phone number 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org. Post a comment on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we are talking tech with Janet McKenney, former director of library development for the Maine State Library, and Jared Maxfield, owner of Necessary Technology. If you'd like to share your comments or questions, feel free. We welcome you. You can send an email to talk at mainepublic.org, comment on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. We will start up in Camden. Nina, go ahead. Hi. <laughs> I have a question about passwords. Go Can ahead. you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I, my Apple password has been um, becoming a nightmare every about once a month. It wants me to reset the password. Uh, this time I spent five hours uh, 
including wait time, um, trying to uh, work with technicians, and um, I won't go through all the <laughs> uh, times and people I talk to, but at this point, I've been told I have to wait three more days to get it um, untangled. And so is there something with Apple? Are they having a problem? Really? You know, poor G Nina, that sounds terrible. Um, Jared, do you have thoughts on what might be going there's, on? There's no specific problem. Um, passwords are just the bane of our existence. And when you lose it or have to reset it and don't have all the information, it can become quite a nightmare. Um, and when you have to call an 800 number to work with someone over the line, that can also be a secondary nightmare. So I, I sure get where she's coming from. There's there's no specific issues. Um, I'm not familiar with Apple typically forcing you to change a password. Usually what we run into is if, if you go to log in and a password's incorrect or somehow is changed and things like that. Um, I recently purchased and are giving out to some of my customers a book called WTF is my password. Uh, you can buy it for about five bucks on Amazon. And it's a great book to have just for everyone to keep organized um, and keep your password for everything from your router to your accounts. But unfortunately, I don't have a great answer because when you're locked out of a, of a password or in that process, we're subjected to the process to reset it or get it back. That, that company, whether it be Apple or Google, whoever it is, whatever they set, there's no magic way to, to get around that. So the best advice I can give is hopefully you get through it and get it reset and get access back. And when you do, um, you know, keep that information somewhere uh, and have access to your, to your Apple ID, especially your, um, and when people are logged in their Apple ID, last thing I'll say is this is real important, especially after you have a password problem. Once you do get back into your account, you should go into your settings and check all of your contact information and make sure that's up to date, particularly with a cell phone. Um, if you're tied to a cell phone and they can simply send you a code for password reset, for those folks, it takes 90 seconds. Um, a lot of us have run into the point where you lose a password, you go to reset it, and your recovery email address is something you had 10 years ago and don't have anymore, or it's an old phone number. And then you hit some brick walls that frankly will potentially keep you locked out of a, an account for eternity. So. And if you're also at a point where it says you have to wait three days, then they might think that there's some sort of security breach. And that's why they're recurring you, requiring you to change that password. And they do put a, a time limit on that sometimes because of security. So I don't have a great answer on how do you get out of it. Unfortunately, you have to, that's one of those things we have to trudge through and complete the process. Boy, yeah. Nina. Go ahead, Janet. I think it's really confusing um, because there's a password to get into your computer. There's a password to get into your email. There's a password for you to buy Apple products. And all these passwords can be different, but a lot of people perceive them. I'm on my machine, it's an Apple, or I'm on my phone and it's an Apple. And, you know, they're conflating all their passwords together. And so part of it is, you know, sussing out you know, which password you're being asked to change and are you legitimately being asked to change it by Apple? Because there are nefarious people there where you get into a loop where, you know, um, they're prompting you to do something that you don't necessarily have to do. So, you know, I'm totally sympathetic. I've been through the 
change password horror. And basically what Jared said is very important because I used to have emails that were different back in the day. So, Well, Nina, I hope at least some sympathy is helpful. Um, thank you so much for calling. Um, we're going to go to Joanne, who's calling from Naples. Hi, Joanne. Go ahead. Hi, Jennifer. I just love this program. Thank you so much to your guests. Um, I have a question regarding two non-functional laptops, uh, the hard drives. Um, I bought a Dell Inspirion in 2020, which has um, solid-state hard drive, and it was there was within six weeks um, there was a defective port, and so when I plugged it into the wall, it was actually running off my battery, only I had no awareness of that uh, until I got the danger, danger sign that said your hard drive is crashing. Um, it was re I bought that to replace uh, Hewlett-Packard 2012 uh, top-of-the-line entertainment uh, laptop, which was similar to the HP Envy, and that was working fine until for seven years until that hard drive crashed. Uh, kind of the same problem. My question is, now I'm a Geek Squad, uh, Best Buy Geek Squad member, and I just can't get them uh, either one of them into look be looked at. But I'm interested in finding out is there a way to get the data, for instance, tax data, on either of those hard drives uh, retained? Okay, uh, Jared. Sounds like a question for you. Yeah, it's totally possible. You'd have to bring it into a computer repair place, or um, if you have a you have a plan with the Geek Squad, I think that's something they might be able to help you with potentially as well. But data recovery on failed hard drives is possible. Um, when it comes into my store, for example, we get data more times than not. There are hard drive failures that will stop us at my level from being able to get data. And then you need, if you desperately need data, there's more expensive services that do what we call a white room recovery, essentially. Um, but it is possible, but somebody would physically in a repair shop or someone with the appropriate tools and know-how would need to physically um, access the machines and see if they're, if the data is available. But more times than not, it is possible. And I would say if you have a machine that's brand new, I, mean, I, think, I don't know if you said six weeks or six months, but if the hard drive has failed, then that should certainly be a, a warranty issue. Uh, as long as there's no damage to it, Maine has a minimum one-year warranty on any new product that's sold. And, um, and then on top of that, the Maine implied warranty law. So... Um, if it is a physical issue, uh, they should be responsible to take care of that for you. Not data recovery. They're not responsible for that, but for the parts itself and for the computer. And the main implied warranty law is for four years, I believe, right? I believe it goes up to four years. Yes. And um, I recently used it myself. If people don't know what it is, they should Google it. But it's our consumer protection law in Maine that says that when you purchase something, it should last longer than a year. And the state will back you up on that. Joanne, thank you for your call. Good luck to you. Uh, an email here from Winnie. Janet, this is a simple one. I am looking for earphones or earbuds that are also noise canceling. Do they exist? And what do you suggest? Oh, well, I use my AirPods, but they're not canceling. But I know that um, Apple just came out with something, but it's their headphones that are canceling, although I think they're AirPod headphones. But I know tons of people uh, in workplaces use a wide variety of canceling technology. Um, I haven't purchased any myself because, you know, now that I'm retired, I live in a very quiet world. 
but um, yeah, they are available. You know, I would have to do a little research and maybe post it to your Facebook page. Okay, uh, that'd be wonderful. And and Jared, you have any suggestions? Yeah, I know that there are no yep. noise canceling headphones. I flew recently, and I think a, a good third of the plane was wearing them. Yeah, well, we've always have. You could always go out and get like your um, large over the ear, you know, bows and things like that. If you're talking about earbuds to go in your ear, um, I've owned virtually every pair of AirPods since they came out. Uh, the AirPod Pros uh, do have noise cancellation. Um, those are very good. I have a pair of those, but what I'm currently literally wearing at this moment is you can also get from Apple, the beats fit pro. Um, when they purchase beats, this is their Apple's version of their air. Um, this also has noise cancellation. I like it better because if, um, with your AirPods, people have a thing hanging down out of your ear with the beats fit pro, everything stays in your ear and also has a tactile button that when you press it, you can actually feel the press of a button. So when you want to do a command, unlike a lot of the AirPods, you actually you have to tap somewhere and hope you tap the right place. So um, I think they're about one ninety nine now, but a lot of times they go on sale. Often you can find them down to one forty nine. But those are two two ones from Apple that I use quite a bit. I'm going to read uh, this email from Rob. We moved to a solar powered home off grid and got Starlink last year. It is amazing. Even in heavy snowstorms, we get constant streaming allows us to work from home. It is rather expensive, but extremely reliable. So thank you, Rob, for that. We'll go to a Rundle and Mike. Hi, Mike, go ahead. Hi there, I hope you can hear me. Um, I had a question about, about uh, more about the technology side of AI and some of the things you all were discussing. And I was, I've been thinking about this a lot and how I wonder how people felt when electricity was first coming out or when the automobile was first coming out, anything really new that's about to change the world and how it um, is there's excitement and there's fear. And I just wondered how you'd compare. Oh, Mike, we just lost you, but we got most of your comment. And, and when you said that, it made me think of the episode of Downton Abbey when they were, some of them were very skeptical about electricity coming and, and fearful. Janet, do you have thoughts on what Mike has said on, on comparing sort of the, the sudden prevalence of AI technology to other technologies of years past? Yeah, we, we always fear things. I know when electricity was first coming, people, you know, thought their houses were going to burn down in fires. And here they are dealing with like candles and gas and stuff like that. And so, you know, there was fear of electrocution. So whenever technology changes, there's a fear because we've lived with something and we have a comfort level with how things work. And so there's always a mistrust. And, you know, I, I think, too, the mistrust is good, um, you know, as far as like regulations and safety and, you know, um, you know, you don't want to. Um, I always wait for a new technology to, you know, kind of get um, established before, you know, I go all in, although, you know, I do like trying it. But yeah, I think a, a lot of it is, is just that transition period to accept um, a new technology, you know, it's the same thing with cars, you know, um, people thought you're walking around on a machine that would explode rather than, you know, like a horse. Um, so that it happens historically whenever, you know, a new technology is introduced. 
Mike, thanks so much for your call and your thoughts. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, there, here's an email from Patrick. I'll send this one to you, Jared. I have twice found my computer frozen by some outfit that calls itself Windows Defender Security. They flash on my screen and say your computer has been alerted for a potential breach. They instructed me to call this number, and he gives a one eight 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 number. I usually shut my computer off for days before I use it again. Please help advise me what to do to get rid of them. Uh, a, we never call the number. Never, don't call the number. Um, the name is irrelevant. Um, you know, I, I tell my customers when they come in, ignore the message, ignore what they're trying to tell you. If you did happen to call the phone number, what they want to do is they want to essentially remote into your computer and there's a whole number of different schemes and scams that they want to do. So A, you don't want to call the number. That pop-up can come directly from a website you're visiting. So if it's a site that you keep going to and you keep getting it, obviously that's some content there that's been compromised and you don't want to do it. It can come from emails, clicking on things we don't know. But what should be checked out is it can also come from malware that's on your machine and should be scanned and checked out and removed because otherwise those messages can keep coming. They're essentially benign if you ignore them. But again, if there's something on your machine that is creating compromised content, marketing, things like that, you certainly want to get it off and hope, you know, for the risk that it's not compromising other information on your machine. So that should be checked out. All right. Um, I'm going to go, let's see, to one more question before we go to break. Of course, my screen just disappeared on me. Here we go. Uh, this is from Eric. I have been using Norton 360 to protect my Windows desktop computer for a number of years, but it's getting more expensive. Are there other lower cost options to protect my computer? Either of you have thoughts about security um, systems? I don't get paid for this, but I'll plug a company we use on my customers' machines. We use ESET, E-S-E-T. If you go to ESET.com, um, they have a very good product. Uh, frankly, I never put my customers on the Nortons or McAfee's of the world. They're overpriced. They're bloated. A lot of times the machine will come in slow and performing horribly. And it's those, the bloatware on some of those programs that's doing it. Um, so you can go to ESET. They've got different um, varieties, but their basic antivirus package, I believe it's $40 for a year. It's less if you buy a multi-year pack. Um, it's about half the cost or so of a lot of the Norton and McAfee's and does a great job and also runs a much smaller program on the computer. It's not going to slow it down. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to have to take another break. Our phone number 1-800-399-3566. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back. And welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You are listening to Maine Calling. And today on the show, answers to your personal technology questions. Joining me, Jared Maxfield, owner of Necessary Technology, and Janet McKenney, former director of library development with the Maine State Library. If you'd like to join our conversation, the number 1-800-399-3566. Here's an email from David. I wish to upgrade several PCs to Windows 11. I have one desktop and one laptop running on Windows 7 Pro and another laptop running on Windows 8. Assuming all hardware requirements are met, what is the most economical and pain-free way to accomplish this? The internet presents a myriad of options and offers, which hints at trouble if I choose the wrong one. Jared, is this for you? 
Well, if your machine will upgrade, it will upgrade. The first thing you need to do on those machines is Microsoft has a has a hardware tester that will tell you if it will even run 11. To be honest, if you have a Windows 7 original machine, I'd be surprised if it's going to run 11, and in, in including the 8. I mean, I've had we've had some machines come through that came out of the factory with Windows 10 and aren't compatible with 11. So that's the first step. Um, and if it will upgrade, um, then it's upgradable and you should be able to do it. It is a heavier system. So, you know, if you have an older hard drive, a lower amount of RAM, it, it, it could run more poorly. But again, that's why that Microsoft tool will make the recommendation. It will not even make a recommendation. There's some, it won't let you do it if, if it doesn't think the hardware is up to spec. So that's the first step to do. And if it will take it, then do the install and enjoy Windows 11. An email here from Woody. I'll send this to you, Janet. I'm 62 years old and I don't do smartphones, social media, Facebook, texting apps, etc. I can't edit 20 years of Word documents because my subscription ran out. I've tried following the renew prompts with no luck and there appears to be no way to contact anyone at Word to help me via the phone or email. Please advise. Word is one of is one of only one of many companies that have no way to contact an actual person for help. And I can hear our audience groaning because everybody has had this experience. Do you have advice? Yeah, I think it's tough because Microsoft, who owns the program Word, um, made some significant changes. And so you either have to buy an older version and slowly upgrade up or switch over to the um, um, Microsoft 360, which is a, a whole kind of suite, but you can just get word. So part of it is it's, um, you know, depending on how old his documents are, what I would do is get Microsoft 360 and see if some of your older documents will open and transfer over to it, you know, without doing it. It's this is where it's really important to try to stay up to date, even though we try to be very economical, you know, our Yankee. <laughs> um, once you're two or three versions of a software program beyond your original upgrading and keeping your documents um, so that you can open and, and do that um, can be problematic. So, um, you know, it, it doesn't sound like this person's super internet savvy. You know, I might say, well, I have Word X. And so go out and see if I can find an older version and install it and then take that older version and, and go back up. So um, I don't know. I'm sure Jared runs into this with folks that are coming into his place, but you know, it is very tough if you've waited too long to update. But the newest one is Microsoft 3, is it 365? Did I say 360? But, um, you know, I would, you know, purchase that for a, like one year subscription and see what you can do. But Jared, I'm sure it, you have. It should. I mean, if you purchase a new version of Word, it should. And remember, when you're looking online, you want to be looking for office because word is really part of office if you just type in word you also need to be careful who you because you can get all mm -hmm. kinds of random things so um also there's free things out there that uh open office at openoffice.org uh, google docs they should all be able to open um legacy word documents and view them edit them things like that 
Good luck to free. you. Great. And and as always, and, and I want to say there are a lot of reputable computer stores around Maine and, and outfits like Jared's and also many, many libraries have someone, if not there all the time, who comes in regularly to help people with computer issues. Correct, Janet? You're nodding. Yeah, I bet this guy, ha he probably has a desktop, you know, which might make it a little difficult to bring it, you know, bring it somewhere. But um, yeah. We'll go to Nick, who's calling from Auburn. Hi, Nick. Go ahead. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for taking my call. Um, go ahead. I, I just wanted to introduce to your listeners um, sort of a different concept on how to generate and keep passwords for the various portals and websites they might be accessing. So a lot of people, they'll just um, you know, make a password, keep a notebook, notebook somewhere uh, in their drawer full of passwords, have no idea you know, which password eventually goes to what. There is um, something called a hash system um, or an algorithm, um, which is basically just like a little recipe that generates a unique password for every website you go to. And instead of having to remember the password itself, you just remember the rules that you use to generate that password. Um, and I could give an example. It's probably not going to make for the most exciting radio, but um, if you bear with me, I could probably give you a little bit of an example of how that might work. Go ahead. So let's say you wanted to create a password for Amazon. You'd start with a standard passphrase. Let's say that passphrase is, I love main calling. And you use some characteristics of the website to kind of help you create unique rules. So if the, pass if the website is Amazon, um, let's say it starts with an A, I'm going to use the number one to put at the end of I love main calling. So I love main calling one. So already you have two layers, let's say, of security built into that password. Um, and you can do that for any website. So if it's Facebook, you could use, um, you know, a, a number for that. You could include um, any number of different rules um, layered on top of that, let's say two or three more layers deep. And now you have a unique password for every single website you visit, and you don't have to remember the password, just those rules that you'd use to make it. So you're creating your own secret code and you only you know the way that your code works. Thoughts from our guests? Yeah, I, I, I kind of do a similar thing, although um, I love main calling is a little bit long for uh, a password with the numeric, but uh, you know, I've kind of created my own algorithm, um, but I do change it. I do change it up. Um, I'm less trusting of those, um, you know, where you can go and it'll create a password that's, you know, ABC, you know, whatever. And, you know, I know um, there's a lot of password kind of lockers um, that, you know, people use as well. Um, I don't necessarily use them because I don't think my life is that complex, but um, I think, Jared, you use a password keeper, don't you? No, it's a secret, Janet. I can't tell everybody <laughs> on the radio. Um, I, I agree with what the caller said. I, I do a similar thing. You know, the only thing you need to be careful with that system is you just need to make sure it, 
there still has to be some sort of change to it because it's highly unlikely. But if you use the same system and you have some sort of breach, it's not, I mean, this is what these bad guys do. I mean, they once they get one password or one thread to tug on, they're going to keep on doing it. And, you know, a lot of us will see these days uh, the Chrome browser uh, has an extension to do it that I like that will tell me if it's found my passwords in a data breach. A lot of credit card monitor or uh, credit report monitoring things will do that. It's important. It's kind of scary too when I see something come up and go, oh, there's that password. So um, having a system is not bad. But to be honest, my everyday on the ground working with human beings and being one myself, we can come up with every system we can. But at some point down the road, you just all of a sudden go, what was that password? And it becomes a problem. So as offline and untechy as it is, a small book or a notebook kept somewhere. Um, and also be careful. I mean, even LastPass, you know, a big company that's there to be secure and save your passwords. They just had a breach, just you know. So the people who are supposed to protect your passwords don't protect their passwords. You got a problem. Nothing like an old-fashioned pen and paper when it comes yeah. to your password. Yeah. yeah. Spiral bound notebook. And, and, and this circles back to something we've talked about before is dealing with, you know, deceased relatives and, and parents or spouses, you know, having access to passwords so that you can take care of, of things. And so having, having that special book in a secure location or in a, a will document what your passwords are or what your protocol is or what your algorithm is, is really important. Nick, thanks for opening up this part of the conversation. We're gonna to go to Tori from Minot. Hi, Tori, go ahead. Yeah, I just, uh, myself and a lot of my friends get endless amounts of email uh, from who knows where and why we get so much and into the junk mail and the email and just forever, you know, every day I have to empty out, you know, a couple of hundred emails out of my email. It's just such a pain and I don't even uh, hit unsubscribe anymore because I'm afraid if I hit unsubscribe, I'll just get more. Oh, Tori, I think so many people are nodding as you're talking right now. Yeah. Janet, what do you do about junk emails? And, and if the next five minutes, you can also solve the problem of robocalls. I'd appreciate that one, too. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm loath to give out my email. And, you know, what happens is you buy something from one entity and they sell your email to another. And, you know, as Jared has said so many times, you know, we don't read through those terms, but what we do is, you know, it's like, hey, if you give give us your email, you'll get 10% off. Uh, basically, the reason they're doing that is because then they're able to monetize your email, um, email address. So, you know, I, I probably on a weekly basis, you know, just delete all junk. And I used to actually feel obligated, oh, maybe something important has gotten gone in there. And now I don't feel worried about it at all. But I also take note, there is a couple of places that stop junk mail. And I probably I can't remember the one that I signed up for, but it eliminated about, you know, 50%. So that did that was really good. And then changing my own practices eliminated another 25%. So part of it is if you're signing up for something free, if you're entering a contest, if you're 
um, trying to get an extra discount, you know, the, this is the ramifications uh, from that is how much junk mail you get. Oh, and the yeah. contests. Oh, I hate the con the contests online. Like, if what Disney character would I be? Fill out this survey. Like, <laughs> that is just a way to pull you in to give your information to somebody else. And they look fun and cheeky and whatever, but it's just, it's literally designed to get your information so they can make money and your information can be out there. And then you get, I'm not saying this caller did it, but this, you, you get spam. So we put our stuff out there. It comes back in spades. Speaking of contests and cute little things like that, Jared, I'm often surprised by how many really smart people I know share these little things on social media. Uh, what character would you be? Um, how old do you think you are? And, and, and I think they haven't listened to you, Jared. <laughs> they don't no, know my what mom, might happen. My, mom, my mother hasn't. I tell her, I just, I say, you clicked on everything. She goes, what did I click on? I go, you clicked on everything. So you need to, <laughs> you need to be care. You know, we got to be careful what we, what we click on. We wouldn't go out in the real world and just hold up our driver's license to a stranger without thinking about it, you know? When we go online, we somehow lose these reservations and these natural defenses we have and tend to just put it out there. But it's, yeah, it's out there and it comes back. A lot of people have their email as part of their profile in Facebook. And so when you're, you know, answering those surveys, like I, I don't have my email on Facebook, you know, um, it, it's just one of the things that I did not fill that out in my profile. Of course, Facebook has my email because, you know, that's that. It's a, you know, a login thing, but. Well, we have a few seconds left. Jared, you have something to share with us in those few seconds, don't you? Sure. Before the show, I just asked ChatGPT. I said, I'm going on main public radio. Could you explain yourself real quick for me so I can tell the folks? And I also said to the AI, can you, do you have a message for the people of Maine? So here we go. Hello to listeners of Maine. As a language model, I'm here to help people communicate and find the information they need. But more importantly, I want to remind everyone of the power of human connection and the importance of coming together as a community, whether it's through listening to each other's stories, sharing a kind word, or simply lending a helping hand. We all have the ability to make a positive impact on those around us. So let's continue to support and uplift each other and work towards a brighter and more connected future. Thank you for turning, tuning in. And that is from the AI who will probably take us over someday, but seems to have some kind words. Oh my goodness, that is quite a way to end the program. Jared Maxfield, thank you as always, owner of Necessary Technology, Janet McKenney, former director of library development with the Maine State Library. Today's sound engineer, KG Akimaladun. The show is put together by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. This is Maine calling on Maine Public Radio.